Hotep, everybody. This is Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network and host of the African History Network show. It is Monday, October 23rd, 2023, and we are here for a very special edition of the African History Network show. And I'm here with a fantastic guest who I met a couple of weeks ago on Roland Martin Unfiltered, uh, Omari Hosang. And she is the founder and executive director of uh, All Streets, All People, also known as ASAP. And she's the senior state organizing manager for Black Voters Matter Fund, Black Voters Matter Fund. How are you doing today, Omari? I'm good, Michael. How are you today? Good hey, Hey, I'm all right. I'm all right. It's good to have you on. And uh, I know when uh, you were on Roland Martin Unfiltered, we were talking about the Louisiana governor's race, and it was right before uh, the election. Well, the election took place on Saturday, October 14th, for those who don't know. And Louisiana's uh, attorney general, uh, Jeff Landry, who is a Republican and who's backed by uh, Benedict Donald, Donald Trump, uh, has won the Louisiana governor's race, holding off a crowded field of candidates. The election took place Saturday, October 14, 2023. Now, um, State Attorney General Jeff Landry won the race by receiving more than 52 percent of the vote of the electorate, a threshold that eliminated the need for a runoff election and flipped a seat that was held by Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards since 2016. Governor Edwards is term limited. Now, uh, State Attorney General Jeff Landry defeated many challengers in this race, including Dr. Sean Wilson, who was on Roland Martin Unfiltered as well. Dr. Sean Wilson is African-American and he's the former Secretary of Transportation for the state of, of Louisiana also. Dr. Sean Wilson got 72% of the African-American vote. But another result of the Saturday, October 14th election was the scapegoating of African-American voters after exit polling data showed that uh, showed their low turnout for a political contest in which the leading Republican has been accused of championing anti-Black policies and He's been accused of being a white supremacist. Now, I saw an article, uh, Omari, that you posted uh, on your uh, Facebook page, and, and we're mm -hmm. Facebook friends. And this is an article from um, NewsOne.com, and I'm going to go to the post that I did on my Facebook page, uh, October 21st. And the name of this article is Black Voters Scapegoated for Louisiana uh, electing suspected white supremacist Jeff Landry as governor. Okay, this is a good article by Bruce C.T. Wright. And uh, in and you posted uh, on the post that I made, um, and I'm going to zoom in on this here, and I want you to comment on it. Uh, you said that, uh, yes, the scapegoating has got to stop. Yes, the scapegoating has got to stop. Personal and collective responsibility is one thing being blamed uh being blamed for results of this election is another how have black people collectively benefited from elections policy and the decisions that elected people are are making slash have have made slash have made so give us a synopsis of uh what going on here and what uh what were you trying to express uh, in your sentiments here 
Well, first of all, I just have to commend your your consolidation, your recap of like all of the things that have been Louisiana these last few months. Because I just oh, have thank to you. I you know it's it's hard to be eloquent in this moment, but I I do appreciate that recap. But you know, oh, thank you. The scapegoating, I think it, it does it 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 does have to stop. You know, for several reasons. Okay. You know. First, let's explore number one, the voting apparatus. Right. The fact that, you know, the state of Louisiana, we have two cases in court mm-hmm. around um, the violation of the Voting Rights Act. Right. Um, we have two maps that we've had to vote on in the last year and a half that were illegal. Right. Right. And so there are clear, proven attempts by our government to dilute our black vote. Mm-hmm. So number one, you're right. Like the 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 perfect ideal definition of voter suppression is happening here and it's right. being defined in the courts. But then you also have um the the reality that people have voted for years. Mm-hmm. May it have been a chronic voter or someone who may have just voted once or twice. And they're asking the questions as we're organizing with them. How has my vote changed my life? How have elections changed my life? And so, you know, that begs the question of, you've got an apparatus that's blocking them from voting, both very overtly and then also subliminally in many ways through the messaging. Right. And then you have the reality of day-to-day life where they're not seeing their interests reflected politically, right? And so... so so just a quick question that I want you to continue. When they say they have voted and how has voting changed their lives or what have you, um, one, what is the age range of people who usually ask that question, number two, number one? Number two, what is your response when um, questions? Well, I mean, honestly, it's been all over the place in terms of the age. It's been mm-hmm. Gen Z's, our Gen Z's, but, you know, there's kind of like a different perspective in, in terms of each age demographic. It's been our elders. Okay. You know, who have been disenchanted with the process. It's been our middle agers at 35 to 55, you know, you know, 35 is not middle age, but, you know, that's another conversation. But okay. you know, it, it's been that group as well. So it's really been all across the board. It's, it's black people who are struggling from day to day. Right. Okay. Trying to pay bills, trying to put food on the table, trying to make sure and ensure that their children are being adequately educated, trying to make sure they're living in places that are safe, going to places that are safe, you right. know, trying to ensure uh, that the food is healthy, um, that their health, that they have access to health care. I mean, there are day to day issues where right. elections and voting have not necessarily precipitated as the common consensus around a way to get these things addressed, a way now, to transform our community. Now, now, has anybody explained to them everything that they mentioned is impacted by laws and policies? So as we have our conversations, that does come up. And I think, you know, it's one thing to be disenchanted, but it's another thing to be able to be comfortable to talk about why. So mm-hmm. it does create an entry point for us to have conversations about the way these things connect with policy, the way these things connect with the people who are putting in office. And it also gives us an opportunity to frame it based on the issue that they actually care about, right? Because again, they're talking, 
right? So if it's utility bills, who's right. on the utility board? Who is on that public service commission? Um, you know, who owns the utilities in your city? If it is gun violence, what are the policies and laws municipally on the local level around criminal justice? Um, you know, how is your civil service board functioning? So right. it creates entry point not only to say these connect to who you're voting for, so let's go vote, but also an entry point to say that we as people collectively have power when we vote, but also when we show up and pay attention to how these various things that are ailing us, whether it be paying bills, whether it be gun violence, whether it be something else, uh, making the connections to the levers that make these things happen. And right. the bottom line is when it comes to politics, when it comes to governance, uh, when it comes to societal issues, there are individuals that are making these decisions. And many of these individuals we are voting for are not voting for. Absolutely. Well, as I explain to people, and I'm not just a political commentator, I'm also a historian. Uh, politics impacts every aspect of our lives from the water we drink to the air we breathe to the food we eat. And uh, politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources, and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances. Absolutely. Politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources, and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. And I, I saw this firsthand when I was on the committee to write an executive order for the city of Detroit. So I've seen politics up in, up close and personal firsthand. Okay, so uh, what I what I want to do here is um, I want to go through and let's look at this piece here from News1.com. And I first saw okay. this article on your uh, Facebook page, and then okay. I uh, took a, a screenshot of it and shared it on my Facebook page as well. And I contacted you, I said, because we were already talking about uh, having you on my show here after mm -hmm. uh, we were on Roland Martin and Filter together. So I want everybody to read this article written by Bruce C.T. Wright from News1.com. This is one of the reasons why African-American-owned media and responsible African-American-owned media matters. It's from October 5th, 2023. Black voters scapegoated for Louisiana electing suspected white supremacist Jeff Landry as governor. Now, Jeff Landry is the current uh, state's attorney general for Louisiana. And uh, very briefly here, uh, I want to go to this point here. Okay, uh, another byproduct of Saturday's election was the scapegoating of the exit polling showed a low, day, low uh, turnout for a political contest in which the leading Republican was being accused of being a white supremacist who particularly champions anti-black policies. Uh, John Kuvilan, uh, a Louisiana-based pollster and CEO of JM, JM Enterprises, a data analytics and consulting firm, pointed to low black turnout as a primary reason why Jeff Landry was elected. The Republican Jeff Landry was elected. On Saturday, October 14th, election day, an estimated 17% of voters who went to the polls were African-American. Okay, Kuvilan uh, posted on the social media app formerly known as Twitter. Okay, now the numbers were not much better among early voters with 26% uh, of people casting ballots ahead of election day African American. So African Americans made up uh seventeen percent of those voting on election day and uh six and twenty-six percent 
of early voters. Now, um, African Americans are 24% of, uh, let me see, in, in total, in total, 72% of Louisiana's white voters participated in the Saturday, October 14th election, compared to 24% of black voters, all right? Now, the voting along racial lines corresponded with their respective preferred candidates. As I stated, African-American voters overwhelmingly supported Dr. Sean Wilson, Louisiana's former Secretary of Transportation and Development. Uh, he was on Roller Martin Unfiltered. He's a brilliant brother. Uh, Dr. Sean Wilson got 70% of Black voters, while uh, just 12% of Black voters voted for um, uh, Jeff Landry. Okay, so what do you make of this, um, Omari? And then I'm going to continue with uh, this piece here. Well, number one, the numbers are so sad. They, I mean, they're sad. It's, that's the reality. They're facts. That's who showed up. And yes. it was clearly a low black voter turnout. Um, you know, we accept that. I think a part of our analysis moving forward, because as you know, in Louisiana, as disappointing as that has been, we have had to continue to prepare for our general, our runoff election. Uh, we have to go back to vote November 18th, which leaves us about five weeks to get back to the drawing board, figure out what we did wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And then figure out what we're gonna do next. Now explain the runoff election. Give us the date again for the runoff election. Explain that. So the runoff election where there are very key statewide races on that ballot is November 18th. Early okay. voting starts November 3rd and lasts for a week. Um, okay. So we have attorney general. So the person that will replace Jeff Landry. Um, we have our state treasurer. Um, and then we also have our Secretary of State, and there's a black woman who has run before. Um, so, so, so not, so not governor, so not governor, not governor, governor, or not governor, Biden. but, but, but the other, uh, other uh, political positions are up for reelection on uh, mm -hmm. Tuesday, November eighteenth. Saturday, November eighteenth. So, oh, oh, Saturday. It's okay. Saturday, November eighteenth. Okay. Yeah, see, Louisiana has Saturday elections, which is a good thing. We like right. that. But there are too right. many elections. So that's a whole nother conversation. You said there are too many elections? There are too many elections in Louisiana. Okay. Louisiana has the, one of the, the states with the highest number of elections. We are constantly voting. If you ask anybody in the advocacy community, the voting rights community, that is right. something that we have to have a legislative remedy around. And we have to factor that into our voter apathy conversation because if we're voting, all the time, it's almost like, oh, we're voting again, we're voting again, we're voting again, we're voting right. again, and can't even really determine how these elections are even impacting our lives. So that has to be fixed as well. Okay. Um, so when people, when people ask the question, how has voting impacted my life, mm -hmm. um, what was your response to them to show the connection between voting and policies enacted and the conditions of people asking the question. Oh, I, you know, first of all, I tell them it's everything. You know, voting policy, it, it impacts every aspect of your life, number one. But I think the, the best strategy for really connecting, right, beyond that statement is connecting to like actual things that are happening. So again, right. somebody who is in the midst of utility crisis and they're talking about they don't want to vote. Well, in your city, the city council and the mayor are your utility board. And right. so if you're in an instance where your lights are being cut off because you owe $3,000 on your bill 
and they don't allow payment plans, guess who you need to take that to? Your city mm -hmm. council person, your mayor. Right. And those right. people show up on your ballot. And so those are just, you know, that's just one example. You know, there are a lot of people in our community who have been impacted uh, by police brutality or who have been justice involved, right? They've been in right. jail. Uh, they've been impacted by uh, the criminal justice system. We elect who? Judges. We elect who? District attorneys. These are people who make decisions around who goes to jail for how long, um, how long someone sits in jail before they're bailed out, our sheriffs. They run our county and parish jails. So, you know, the list is endless. And I think the more molecular and the more and the closer to home that we get to the person that we're talking to, the more we can really tap into the reality that when you don't vote, you continue to allow other people to make decisions for you. And then further than that, you have to do more than just voting. Right. And right. that conversation cannot happen just during the election cycle. That conversation has to happen exactly every single day. It's a, it's a continuous process. Mm -hmm. And what's also important is what you do after the election is over with mm -hmm. and, the, and the engagement after the election is over with pushing policies, holding elected officials accountable. Mm -hmm. So one of the one of the mistakes and, and I argue that as a as a as a people. African-Americans have never really been taught to play the game of politics to win. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. You have organizations like yours mm -hmm. that are trying to educate African-Americans, but as a people, mm -hmm. we have not been, you know, we're playing a real life game of political football. And most of us don't know the difference between the first down and the touchdown and don't, and wonder why we're not winning the game or have more points. Well, the thing is, All right, so, that's our responsibility to educate them. Like the people, Oh, oh, I agree. Right. I yeah, agree. And, and like Your organization and right, others right, right, not right. putting all the onus on black voters mm -hmm. matter. Okay. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's our, and I'm going to get okay. to that. The, the, the democratic party has a role to play, but we can't look at the, at the democratic party or any political party that, that we don't control as a savior. Oh, my we favorite. can use them as a tool, but we can't look at them as a savior. We have to understand the difference. Yes. Okay. All right, so so let me let me uh, I'm going to go back to this article here in just a minute, but I, I want to um, you know I deal with this type of information. Uh, I've been dealing with this uh, for years. Uh, most of my a lot of my uh, viewers and followers know that uh, my degrees in business business administration with a major in marketing from Wayne State University here in Detroit. Okay. I used to teach entrepreneurship for seven years, and not just a historian, not just a political commentator, but I have a background in business as well. So w one of the things I talk about uh, to people when they talk about uh, voting mm -hmm. and the impact of voting, uh, what's what's the minimum wage in the state of Louisiana around? You know, I'll, the last number I've heard is seven twenty-five. Seven dollars twenty-five cents an hour. Okay. Now, are you familiar with Black Women's Equal Pay Day? Mm, loosely, I've heard of it. Okay. okay. So, so it takes the average African American woman twenty months to t to make the same amount of money that the average white male made the previous twelve months. That's ridiculous. Okay? Now. Uh, this article is from BlackEnterprise.com, October 17, 2019. Black women lose out over $1 million in their careers thanks to the wage gap. Okay. Mm. This is an excellent article by Justin Barton. So anybody that thinks uh, politics or policies does not uh, is not related to uh, economics and your mm. economic condition, uh, one, you don't watch the African History Network show. Two, you, you don't read, okay, because it directly. Is. Now, briefly, 
um, a black woman will lose out on $946,120 over a 40-year career if she continues to make 61 cents on the dollar that every white man earns due to the wage gap analysis by the National Women's Law Center shows. So uh, black women's equal payday usually sometime in August and African-American women make somewhere between six in the past few years, somewhere between 63 cents to 67 cents on the dollar that the average white male makes. Okay. Now, uh, assuming quote, assuming she and her white non-Hispanic male counterpart begin work at age 20, a black woman will have to work until she is 86 years old mm. to catch up to what a white non-Hispanic man has been paid by age 60, mm -hmm. the press release state. Okay. So then it goes on to talk about states that are the worst when it comes to how much black women make. The National Women's Law Center found that black women face larger pay disparity in certain states. In the state of Louisiana, black women are paid on average 47 cents of every dollar that white non-Hispanic male counterpart makes, which is the worst state for black women's wage equality. Now, um, now the numbers, it now, it may have ticked up to 50 cents by now. Okay. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, this is from 2020. This is from two, three years ago. Okay. So it may, it may be 50 cents. Okay. It may be 51 cents. All right. But this shows the impact of policy. Okay. Um, so this is something you can share with people down there. So, and Republicans control your Thank state you. legislature, Republicans yeah. control your, uh, uh, now the governorship. Yes. And, they have the ability to raise the minimum wage, but Republicans generally don't do that because they're pro corporation. Okay. Correct. So, so and, we have and to, you know, I want to add too in Louisiana, in Louisiana, um, pay raises, um, and anything having to do with labor, uh, mm -hmm. making labor changes is preempted. So, G give us an example. It, yeah. So, if the state won't do it, you know, say the city of Shreveport. Um, mm -hmm. up in North Louisiana wants to increase their minimum wage. The council okay. can vote on it. The state of Louisiana has essentially blocked through preemption the ability of municipalities to do that. And so, you know, there has been a fight through Unleash Local um, to make sure that we have the ability, people have the ability where we don't have state power, you know, where black folks and um, folks who are low income don't have state power can have the ability to at least in a place like Shreveport, a place like New Orleans, a place like Baton Rouge, be able to set their own minimum wage, be able to make sure that women um, can have that maternity leave um, that they right. need, hey, maternity leave that they need. Um, so all of these things, you know, being able to recognize how our state governments are shifting power away from our local cities, but also understanding how can we leverage the power that we do have in our local cities to work for us in an environment like in Louisiana where we have a Republican supermajority. Right now, um, and with a, with a supermajority, uh, usually that means they control two thirds or more of the uh, state legislature. Okay, so um, so they can they, they so it, with most state constitutions, the state legislature can veto that can override a governor's veto. So if the state legislature passes a bill 
the uh, the state house and Senate passes a bill, send it to the governor to sign it, and the governor vetoes the bill, then with, with most state constitutions, the state legislature can override the governor's veto if they get a two-thirds majority vote in, in both houses. Is that how it works in the state of Louisiana? Yes. And can I just pause to just... Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, can I... You need to come on the Ella Joe Baker Movement School because I, I, you know, I didn't know I was coming on for my own personal political education. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> but you know, look like that civics education, walking, right? You know, us through that process is so important, right? Absolutely. Because, like you can, you know, if you know the ingredients that it takes mm -hmm. to actually make the changes you're a right. little bit closer, you're you're more accessible to being able to influence that process. So I just have to pause for the cause to, to just live right. Um, oh, absolutely, I'll come on. But yeah, you know, yep. even with, you know, we got these last couple of months uh, with mm -hmm. our, our Democratic governor, uh, John Bell Edwards here in Louisiana. Right. And so if there was a policy, say he wanted um, to just do anything, right? He wanted to, to stop the legislature from doing something per se. He, with our supermajority, does he really have the power to do so? Right. right. And this, he, mm -hmm. go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish no, so I, you know, it just speaks to you can have who you want in the governor's office, but if your right. state legislature is in a chokehold by whichever party, it is almost impossible to get things done or to get policy passed in that type of environment. And this is why I explain to people it's not just the president. Is not just the governor, but it's also your state house. It's also yeah. your, your your state senate. That's mm -hmm. extremely important because they they're the ones that legislate. That's the state legislature. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're the ones that write the bills. The governor signs the bills into law. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and what a lot of states have done is have gerrymandered districts. Okay, to to reduce the uh, voting power of African Americans. So they would either split us up. Uh, uh, to to disperse us so we don't have a majority, you know, black districts or re or pack us all in the one district to reduce our ability to impact races and get more African Americans into um, the uh, into the uh, state legislature. Yes. Okay, so uh, I want to go back to this article here from uh, NewsOne.com. Okay. And um, once again, everybody, the name of this piece is uh, Black Voters Scapegoated for Louisiana Electing Suspected White Supremacist Jeff Landry um, as Governor. So when we uh, continue with this piece, it says, uh, OK, so black, we know black voters overwhelmingly voted for Dr. Sean Wilson mm -hmm. um, back in 2016, uh, the pollster. Uh, Louisiana-based poster John Cuvillan out that John Bell Edwards, who is term limited and he's a white male, won convincingly with 91% of the black vote. Okay, now Dr. Sean Wilson got 70% uh, of the black vote. Yes. Uh, considering the exit polling data and historical perspective, quote, Sean got weak turnout 
did not dominate among black voters, Kuvilan concluded. Mm -hmm. So what, uh, g give us your analysis of this, because you're there on the ground in mm -hmm. Louisiana, and a lot of people were, uh, as this article goes on to say, uh, for the month of September, uh, they said Democrats were outspent $1.2 million by Republicans versus $28,000 by Democrats in the month of September 2023. Give us your analysis there on the ground in Louisiana. Right. So, you know, number one, it was very shocking to see the amount of people who did not realize that a black man was running for governor. Uh, <laughs> so there was that. It was a huge, yeah, it was a real thing. Very much right. a real thing that pe uh, people had no idea. Um, and then I don't think there was a general consensus across the black community of those who did know that he could mm -hmm. win. Right there, there is this idea um, that has Louisiana in a chokehold that a black person cannot win a statewide office. Now, right? what what is what is what is that ideology come from, or where do you think it comes I, from? I would assume anti-blackness and racism in the state of Louisiana. Um, of course, I think it's connected to um, like the disconnectedness in the the black voter pool. Um, mm -hmm. around agreeing on a common candidate. Um, I think there are a lot of implications as to why we can't elect, you know, a black person statewide. And I think we need to continue to have that conversation and really dig in into why. Uh, we do have a large number of black voters in our state. Uh, that's not to say that the black electorate can save an election, but we can most right. certainly have a huge impact on a statewide election. I think there's of course, the other piece around the $1.2 million to the $28,000 um, right. and the role that the Democratic Party may or may not have played in this election, uh, their lack of in their clear lack of investment as evidenced by those numbers in the election, I think is very troubling and concerning um, as to what happened um, and to really have that conversation. But we cannot just that's why I'm not, you know, I am not for the scapegoating of black voters and I'm not for the scapegoating right. of anybody. I think at the end of the day, we have to figure out what is our strategy because people are continuing to become increasingly, increasingly more jaded and unbelieving that Louisiana is a positive political factor. And to me, we have too much, uh, too many black people in this state. Um, right. You know, yeah, 1.5 million approximately. State. Yeah, 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 we're right. like a state in, so, in terms of concentration. And so we right. have considerable political power that is untapped. But for folks to say, hey, I'm leaving, I'm keeping my hands off of Louisiana is, is pure red, it's becoming redder and redder. To them, I say, how is it that we can really tap into this 920,000 plus black voters if we don't invest in what it takes to do that? Black Voters Matter is a vehicle of investment into black voters. ASAP is a vehicle of investment into black voters. People's Promise, all of the countless gra grassroots organizations in the state and national organizations around the country that can invest and leverage their resources into this state show me that we can have, we can leverage the political power that we have in this state, but it takes investment and it takes a belief in that and we don't create belief or inspiration or activation by blaming folks on this last election. 
Let's really figure out our strategy when it comes to from the partisan side of it, but also from the right. nonpartisan side of what will it what what is the factor that kept our people from going to vote? What is that factor? And how can we break through that? I don't think saying go out to vote is the answer to that question. I think no. getting real about what our people need and the resources that it takes to provide that for our people, to meet them in our meet us in our moment of need. Um, I think that's a, a multifaceted answer and it is a diversity of institutions and organizations, but we're going to have to come together and get on one page because this, this, this political game, game is deadly everywhere, particularly in Louisiana, where we have the petrochemical industry, mm-hmm. where we have, we were just deemed by some wallet hub, something, the most dangerous state in America, right? Which, right. You know, now Jeff Landry, speaking of the power that senators and legislators have in our state, um, Representative Alan Seaball has created a new task force um, around crime, right? And they have this kind of tough on crime approach. Uh, Jeff Landry has been on record for believing that stop and frisk is a critical strategy in stopping crime. Uh, And so these are real concerns, real life or death concerns, where we've just elected someone who has a clear stance that opposes our self-interest and our right. interest collectively. So we got to figure it out how we're going to come together and make this thing work. Exactly. Uh, um, I definitely agree with that. Now, when we, I want to go back to this article here. And, and when, when I explain to African-Americans the, the importance of voting and voting strategically. And I'm neither Democrat nor Republican, but I sure as hell ain't stupid. I can yeah. see whose policies, I can see who consistently votes against our best interests, votes against policies that are beneficial to African Americans. And I see who consistently, generally speaking, votes for policies that are beneficial for us. But one of the things I tell people is, I know people mean well, but we have to stop telling our people to exercise your right to vote. Okay, you don't vote for exercise. If you want to exercise, you go to the gym and work out. You vote for power, mm-hmm. pure and simple. Pure you and vote simple. for black. You vote for black power. Mm-hmm. You vote for policies mm-hmm. that are beneficial to you, your families, your communities, and the yes. policies that are beneficial to African Americans are beneficial to America in general. And you mm-hmm. vote for people uh, who will uh, craft those policies and put them in place, but also people who will vote to protect your gains as well. Because one of the one of the mistakes that we make is we don't understand the concept of protecting gains that have already been made and don't understand how to assess gains yes. that have been made as well. Okay. So there, yes. there, there are always people trying to turn back the clock. You look mm-hmm. at the US Supreme Court, they yeah. struck down uh, affirmative action when it comes to uh, college admissions. Mm-hmm. Okay after affirmative action was put in place by President Lyndon Johnson in uh, uh, September uh, 1965, all right? But this, was, it, but this was a result of the 2016 presidential election. And, you know, Donald Trump winning by 78,000 votes in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And too many of, of our people not understanding um, how the Electoral College works. And mm-hmm. I hear people say, oh, the popular vote doesn't matter. No, the popular vote does matter. It's the popular vote per state that matters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you, uh, when you become president elect by getting 270 electoral college votes, 
you get to 270 by winning the popular vote in the state. When you win the popular vote in the state, then you win the electoral college votes associated with the state. So Republicans won two presidential elections in about 20 years by, win by winning in the electoral college, but, you but losing the popular vote because a lot of our people haven't read the U.S. Constitution because the U.S. Constitution created the electoral college. So when you understand the rules of the game, then you understand how to win the game. Yeah. Okay. We, this, this is what I'm saying. We've never been taught this as a people. Okay. If you read the, if you go to, I tell, I tell all my listeners, go to loc.gov, Library of Congress, loc.gov, or archives.gov, U.S. National Archives, and read the U.S. Constitution. It's there. You can read it for free. Okay. Okay. And and so when we look at um, this is why this is why I tell people people talking about voting third party for president. I'm like, no third party candidate has won a single electoral college vote since 1968. Mm -hmm. You need 270 electoral college college votes to become president elect. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about voting third party, you talking about throwing away a vote. That, 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 okay, see, you're 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 trying to score 16 points on a field goal. That don't exist. Yeah. Okay. Because you don't understand the rules of the game. Okay. So <laughs> we have to, we're about to take ourselves out. This is a mistake. It, look, Donald Trump won Michigan in 2016 by 10,704 10, votes. Mm. He won by 10,704 votes, two tenths of a percentage point. Okay. Jill Stein got 50,000 votes out of Michigan. Mm -hmm. Why? We don't understand math. We invented yeah. math, but don't understand math. Okay. Mm -hmm. let, let, let me go back to this. Let me go back to this piece here. Okay. Uh, and they talked about, uh, so Roland Martin made a comment as well. Our friend Roland, we're okay. both on, I'm on a show every Friday. Uh, it's been, so October, this month is my third year anniversary of being on Roland Martin Unfiltered for the okay. past three years. Every, I'm on it. Oh, thanks. I'm on every Friday as a panelist providing historical and political, uh, context and commentary. So journalist Roland Martin also suggested black voters didn't do their part in Saturday's election by asking, quote, how in the hell did black voters in Louisiana not turn out in major numbers to keep this sadistic man out of the governor's mansion? Okay. End quote. Now, just so people understand, Roland has Roland had Omari on the show. Roland had Jeff Chambers on the show as, as well. Uh, who ran for the U.S. Senate. In oh, yeah, Louisiana. Gary Chambers. Gary Chambers. Gary Chambers. He had him on. I was on with Gary Chambers as well. Roland had okay. Dr. Sean Wilson on. So Roland has been in support of African-Americans getting out and voting mm -hmm. and especially voting for Dr. Sean Wilson. So it's not like he's speaking after the fact and hasn't been educating people on what's been going on in Louisiana. Uh, Roland Martin's question was in response to a social media post drawing attention to Jeff Land Landry's documented history of anti-blackness. Okay, here's the um, uh, tweet uh, from uh, Roland Martin as well. Okay, so comment uh, on this and what, like, so what are after comment on Roland's post? Yeah, uh, or comment and so then. What are African Americans saying now that is like, okay, now Jeff Landry wins and he has a history of anti-blackness and anti-black policy? So this is a layered question. Let me deal first with Ron. That's fine. So, um, it's a legitimate question. Mm -hmm. It's a legitimate question. Why didn't we turn out? You know, and 
my question would be how many people actually knew Jeff Landry's record? You know, was that widespread? I saw several Jeff Landry commercials, but I didn't really see, and I'm not, that's not saying they did not exist, but sure. I didn't see any commercials that really spoke on Jeff Landry's record that made it widely known. Um, I did not see a lot of signage. Um, there right. are many people that I have talked to that said they never heard from one candidate or the other or even received those common calls we get during an election like this, a call or a text to get out to vote. Right. right. And so I think there needs to be a serious question about capacity. And that's okay. why I speak about solidarity a lot in terms of black folks everywhere need to be helping black folks everywhere as much as we can. As many people that flooded into Georgia um, mm -hmm. for their various elections um, right. need to be the amount of people that flooded into Louisiana, knowing that this was our last blue frontier in terms of having a Democratic governor in the Deep South. That's gone. That's over with. But if we had that blitz of, of people and organizations, which means we have to ask for it. Um, so I'm not blaming anyone for not coming. But what I'm saying is that should have been incorporated hindsight is 2020 into the strategy we needed people to be knocking on doors to make phone calls to send texts to pass out leaflets to put out signs to wave signs to provide rides provide vans provide money i mean there are so many things that and it's not too late because again november 18th races, right for the runoff attorney general secretary of state and state treasurer if we put decent ones in office they can serve as much as possible as a buffer between right. our governor, chief prosecutor, attorney general, the chief money bag, purse holder, our, our state treasurer, and the chief elections administrator in a state where voter suppression is clearly documented, right? From right. the courts on down to the legislative policies. Um, so we have an opportunity. And so I'm calling on people who have those resources that know that the black electorate in Louisiana by number, just by number, mm -hmm. shows our immense potential and our immense power, not only on the state level, but as you talked about the electoral college, when you win the popular vote, you win the electoral votes. And we know right, that right. that has been the Republican strategy, especially in states like Louisiana. And well, so there are still yeah. some blue parishes, um, but there is there's a there is a blue block here, but there's an even even bigger black block that mm -hmm. um, holds power that we can con continue to hold out hope and build on the state level. But that black power that we have, we really need to start building campaigns and leveraging it on the local level because the revolution is local, uh, and we can't forget that. But then right. also too. Next year is 2024. And mm -hmm. so there, there, there's work to be done around that. Not forgetting about November 18th here in Louisiana. But then I know that in every community in Louisiana, there is something going on that is hurting our people. And there right. are enough organizations in those spaces to organize around these issues and to provide support in our community and to have those conversations that you mentioned where we're connecting our, our people's issue to the ballot and to the policy, right? In real time. Right. And that has to be a part of the strategy as well to empower these local organizations to be able to organize locally around the actual issues, the issues that would actually, that we, that we can address, but that would actually drive people to the ballot if they're starting to see, if they finally see how these issues impact their life and how voting 
is a is a step in order to reach that that uh, that solution. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when um, Gary Chambers was on uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered, and I actually mm-hmm. posted that clip, um, I actually broadcasted that here on our fan page. And this, so those uh, those of you uh, who follow the African History Network, you can watch that clip of Gary Chambers and myself and Roland discussing this on Roland Martin Unfiltered on our fan page, the African History Network, and my YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotel. Um, I asked Gary about um, how do they connect the history of Louisiana and the history of voter suppression in Louisiana and the Louisiana mm-hmm. state constitution of 1898, which mm-hmm. imposed poll taxes, literacy tests, but also a grandfather clause mm-hmm. as well. Uh, and it also imposed a nine, three, uh, majority, uh, rule when it came to felony convictions. Uh, so if you were, if you had a jury of 12 and nine people. Non-unanimous you, juries. Yeah, non-unanimous juries. If nine people found you guilty and three found you not guilty, then you were guilty. And these, this is what felonies. That was done specifically to nullify the African-American jurors on a jury. Because based upon that 1898 state constitution, African-Americans could serve on juries. Okay. So. They put that rule in place. Now it it it, it, it was uh, they changed it to ten two after some decades, and they changed it to unanimous in twenty eighteen. Okay, how do you all make the connection from that Louisiana state constitution mm-hmm. that and parts of it are still in effect today? How do you make that connection from that to policy policies and conditions that exist today that negatively impact African Americans in Louisiana? Right, it can't be disconnected. You know, I think about. Uh, the ballot initiative that we we just recently have been dealing with around the slavery exception clause, which is still alive and well in our Louisiana state constitution. And, you know, I don't think that there it is broadly known that state policies and changing constitutional amendments can be brought to the people via a vote, but also that constitutional amendments uh, can be changed via legislature. So there has been a fight for the past three years. And once again, state now state Senator Representative Alan Seabaugh um, mm-hmm. was someone who very much did not want to remove the slavery exception clause from the state constitution because of how it could possibly impact prison labor. Okay, so we're going from the voting booth, this is, you know, we're going from the state constitution, right? A slavery exception clause in the state constitution that can be amended through the vote of both the House and the Senate and then taken to the ballot for a vote by the people and its connections to actual prison labor in the state of Louisiana, right? There are so many people in the state of Louisiana that are black that are incarcerated. In fact, Louisiana has the highest incarceration in the world, um, even ahead of China in terms of the amount of people that are incarcerated. And then furthermore, we have a very infamous um, facility here called Angola, where mm-hmm. incarcerated people are picking cotton, they're raising geese, they are doing all types of hard labor and being paid pennies on the dollar. So back to the slavery exception clause. The slavery exception clause in our state constitution allows for this prison labor to go on without payment. Um, and so this prison labor goes by another name that we know, and that's slavery. 
And so slavery is permissible via our state constitution as punishment for a crime. So when we think about the number of black people that are incarcerated in the state of Louisiana and the level of intense labor that they are required to do without pay or very little pay, then we recognize how, how interested our prison industrial complex might be in keeping the exception clause in our state constitution. Um, how interested so these Go ahead. Well, uh, let, me, let me ask you, did you, did okay. you watch the video I sent you, the, my interview with Dr. Daryl Scott? Not dealing yet. with the 13th, oh, you need to watch that. Okay, I'm going to watch it. The 13th Amendment is based upon the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. People totally mis, totally misunderstand all this stuff because uh, that, that stuff existed going back to the 1840s before the 13th Amendment was even created. And the 13th, what they were doing with the 13th Amendment was really, they were giving the same rights to African-Americans that white men had. Then the next year after 1865, you had the 1866 uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866, which became the foundation of the 14th Amendment of 1868. So what, what I encourage people to do is in states where they have removed people one of the things that happens is that well many people confuse language mm -hmm. in state constitutions with actual law mm -hmm. in states where they remove that clause mm -hmm. how many how many quote-unquote slaves were freed the next day how many were freed the next month because that right. clause was removed yeah. how many so, so people are totally misunderstanding this and thinking that's why that, that, that that's why they're incarcerated. No, no, it's not. Okay, there you can't get to actually changing those laws because you think this over here is why they're incarcerated. No, and you go if you go look at um, even uh, you look at the creation of the convict leasing system going back to the 1840s in if I'm correctly that started in Louisiana. We disproportionately made up the disproportionately made up the convict leasing system in the in the eighteen forties. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, 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 one of the one of the mistakes. So when, this is what happened mm -hmm. when Ava DuVernay's documentary Thirteenth came out. Mm -hmm. I was doing a lecture and doing research on a lecture dealing with the history of the war on drugs in this country. History of the war on drugs goes back to June 17th, 1971, with Richard Nixon, when he declared his war on drugs in front of Congress, asking for more money to fight the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. So um, I kept coming back to this. Now, the U.S. prison population quadruples from 1970 to 1993. Okay. And once again, it... The crime bill, when the, the, the 94 crime bill everybody likes to talk about, that wasn't signed in the law to September 13, 1994. U.S. prison population goes from 300,000 in 1970 to 1.3 million in 1993. People can go to the U.S. Bureau of Prisons, go to their website. You can look at, I went and researched the prison populations in this country. Okay, mm -hmm. It quadruples from 1970 to 1993. Mm -hmm. So the question I kept coming back to is, because you have very low prison rates in this country, up until the early 1970s. I kept coming back to this question. Okay, so if the 13th Amendment was created to re-enslave African-Americans, why did it take 106 years 
from 1865 to 1971 for this quote-unquote mass incarceration that everybody likes to talk about. And in talking to Dr. Daryl Scott, who uh, taught a class at, he's a, he was a historian, a history professor at Howard University. Now he's at Morgan State University. He taught a class on from slavery to mass incarceration. And he, he, he told me about how each year he has to, he has to dispel all these myths that these freshmen and sophomores come into the classes with, things like this. He has to deal like with the real history mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and really understanding the laws that shape the history behind this. So I, I'll encourage people to go look at those states that uh, uh, remove what they call the slavery exception clause from the, the, their state constitutions and then see what the impact was. Okay. And then you, because that's not why they're in prison. I'm and, you know, and, and I don't think that the advocate groups that are fighting mm -hmm. for the removal of the exception clause are even positing that that is why. But I think it does beg the question of how these laws and these constitutional amendments almost justify what's happening. And I think it creates the space for a conversation, not only around hard labor, but you were talking about the war on drugs or the war on crime, um, mm -hmm. you know, during the Nixon pres presidency, um, how, you know, maybe a law does not directly contribute to a thing, may not directly contribute to folks being in jail, but it creates an environment where it is acceptable for there to be a war on drugs, for there to be, um, you know, an over-policing of black bodies and under-policing of black communities. It creates an environment and so I think it's still critical for us to, to your point, understand our state constitutions and the impl implications of them and to continue to understand the intricate way we can influence these things. Because again, a constitutional amendment can be changed through the vote of a House and a Senate and a state legislature, and it can go to the ballot. And so I think there, and I, and I see what you're saying, like the policy did not directly contribute you know, this amendment did not directly contribute to mass incarceration in Louisiana. But to my point, I think it is still important to continue the political education and the connections between these things. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think also, too, about, you know, some policies that have impacted around, like, um, you know, you think about the war on drugs and marijuana and how mm -hmm. a bag of marijuana has landed some people in the state of Louisiana in jail for 75 years for a dime right. bag of weed. And so, you know, policies that have happened, again, on the local level, in places like Shreveport and New Orleans, where if you are pulled over and you have 14 grams or less of marijuana, you don't get taken to jail. You receive a ticket that you then pay later, right? And right. so policies do have an impact and we have to understand oh, the intricacies of those and be able to look at our issues and say, okay, this man, you know, Brinka Peoples, one of the activists that I work with here in Louisiana, she said she was sitting in court one day and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, somebody got got thrown in jail um, for a dime of weed. And that in her mind is what activated her to say, hey, we need to change policy around uh, marijuana because so many of our black men are being put in jail because of this. Um, while there are other harder drugs and other populations that are being slapped on the hand. And so these um, these connections, uh, the political education to make those connections for our people, having the conversation 
around these things is important. I think that there should be a U.S. Constitution steady group. I think that we should be sitting down and looking at our state constitution. But I also think we need right. to be looking at our city charters. Oh, absolutely. So, city um, charter is the city constitution. Yes. Yeah. City charter, state constitution, U.S. Constitution. So just quickly, and I'm gonna get back to the article in just a okay. minute. When 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 we talk about uh, marijuana, mm-hmm. um, up until 1937, marijuana was legal in this country. Mm. The use of marijuana was legal in this country. You know why marijuana was made illegal in 1937? Propaganda. What do you mean by propaganda? The propaganda that was put out about the dangers of marijuana and the dangers of ingesting marijuana. Okay. You ever heard of Harry J. Anslinger? No. Okay. Harry J. Anslinger is the main reason why marijuana is illegal. Um, it was Harry J. Anslinger was a virulent racist. And he was the uh, first chairman of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Okay. And he went on a, he had this campaign. uh, And this is during the Great Depression. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is during the uh, 1930s. And after, um, after the prohibition of alcohol, the uh, Federal Bureau is, uh, looking for another cause to go after to keep the funding going. Okay. Now, this, this is a piece from timeline.com, nasmedium.com, how a racist hate monger masterminded America's war on drugs. Harry Anslinger conflated drugs, race, and music to criminalize non-whiteness and create a prison industrial complex. This is from February 28, 2018. This is Harry J. Anslinger. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now this is um, this is even before the uh, FBI uh, was. Uh, this is I think this is before the FBI also. But it, here's what happened. It was along racial lines. Okay. Um, Harry Harry J. Anslinger in his um, congressional testimony. Okay. And I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna find this quote here. I want everybody to see this. Harry J. Anslinger in his congressional testimony said that, uh, okay, it it says here, uh, from the beginning, Anslinger conflated drug use, race, and music. He said, reefer makes darkies think think they're as good as men, end quote. He was quoted as saying, quote, there are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz and swing, jazz and swing music, result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others, end quote. Now, this is the same guy who helped to bring down Billie Holiday. And set Billie Holiday. When you when you watch the Billie Holiday uh, movie uh, uh, that was on Hulu, mm-hmm. it's Harry J. Anslinger that sets up Billie Holiday. Now I gotta see that. Down. I gotta see that movie now. Okay, so 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 when you st- so what I did was in preparation for uh, my lecture dealing with uh, the uh, the Richard Nixon's war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I had to go back and study the history of drug policies in this country going back to 1875 in San Francisco when uh, you had the first drug laws in this country. Uh, and these were the anti-opium laws targeting uh, Chinese men working on the railroads. Because all these, all these drugs were legal as long as white people were using them. Opium was legal. Marijuana or what was called cannabis or hemp was legal. Cocaine was legal. Cocaine becomes illegal because white people fear that black men have superhuman strength where they're high on cocaine and they fear that they'll rape white women. Okay, so there was a there was a a, a February eighth, nineteen fourteen article from the New York Times, nineteen fourteen, because the New York Times is over a uh, uh, hundred years old. Okay. And this is a this is a famous article. I want everybody to check this out. Okay, this is a famous article um, titled "Negro Cocaine Fiends Are a New Southern Menace." Okay, uh, let me see. We can pull this up here. This is from. Okay, I got a couple of sources on this. Uh, okay, because I have a subscription to the New York Times. So let's look at this one right here, and then we'll continue. But it's important for people. This 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 is how. History and Racism Shapes Policies, okay? Uh, this is from the New York Times, February 8th, 1914. This is the same year that World War I starts. Negro cocaine fiends are a new Southern menace, murder and insanity increasing among lower class blacks because they have taken to sniffing since deprived of whiskey by prohibition. Now this is a huge article from the New York Times. And one of the things that they're asking in this article is do police officers now need to carry a 45 caliber handgun because a 38 is not powerful enough to kill a Negro high on cocaine? And the fear that these black men will rape white women. Okay, now, now exactly one year to the date that this article came out, you know what movie came out? No, what, what, what came out? The Birth of a Nation, February 8th, 1915. Exactly one year to the date that this article came out. And in The Birth of a Nation, Propaganda. There's, a, there's a scene where you have this black man trying to rape a white virgin. And the heroes of the movie are the Ku Klux Klan who rise up to put down a what they call a rebellion of former Union Negro soldiers during the Reconstruction mm -hmm. era. And, and the movie, The Birth of a Nation, is largely credited with the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in this country going into the 1920s. Because the, because the, the movie showed the Klans as heroes and is centered around the fear of what would these black men do? Oh, now they're free. Okay, because the movie takes place during slavery, the Civil War and Reconstruction, and where they rape white women. Well, this is the fear that they talk about in that article from the New York Times. This is the fear surrounding the anti-opium laws of 1875 targeting Chinese mm -hmm. men. Where they seduce white women, where they rape white women, things like this when they're high on opium. Okay, now, um, this, uh, uh, and we're going to wrap up here in just a minute. Um, and I want you to talk about your uh, other organization uh, as well, ASAP. Okay. Uh, the the uh, PeaceFromNews1.com uh had so much in here and it also talked about the disparity in the uh amount of money that was spent uh by democrats in relationship to uh 
uh, Republicans. Okay. A $1.2 million spent in September and by Republicans, 28,000 in uh, September by Democrats in this uh, governor's race. Okay. Uh, Talk about that discrepancy for a minute. And what do you think African-Americans especially can do to combat that in future elections? Well, you know, the discrepancy is very alarming. I would love to, Mm -hmm. you know, hear from our party leadership to really understand that a little bit better uh, and kind of, you know, what did the resource ask look like and kind of what were the gaps? Was there a hesitance to invest and just really learn more about that? But I also think what this speaks to in terms of like black people is that if, if this is the party that we want to build our power in, we have to start running for office within the party. Um, you know, again, okay, yeah. always, like the revolution is local, right? You got your state party, mm-hmm. um, but we also need to be running for our DPACs and our DSCCs. We need to now, now, now explain that DPAC and DSCC. Explain that. So, Break down so the DPAC is the district. Um, so like you have your state representative district. The okay. DPAC is over right. that, that, that level, that, um, I guess that. Um, district level in terms of the Democratic okay. Party. They make up the members of the Democratic leadership in the state. And then you have the DSCC, right. which is based on your state Senate district, right? And so you okay. have individuals like me and you that can run for leadership in those groups, in those, uh, right. those committees. They are committees. They are Democratic committees. Uh, but you also have exec- executive leadership, which is the leadership that is on the state level. So you have your various districts over certain levels, like there's a district that would govern Shreveport, and there's a, a many parishes that are within that DPEC district, and there are even more parishes that are within the DSCC district. And then you have your executive leadership um, who work closely with the chairman and the executive director of the party. And so you can run for those positions as well as member of the members of the party. And so it's important that we not only talk about running for office in the context of running for all the many offices that show up on a public ballot, um, but for offices right. within the party. With the caveat that I do not believe the Republican or the Democratic Party is going to save us. I don't believe that Great. you know one party is going to be able to address the the gamut, the comprehensive. Uh, pervasive level of the issues that we as black people experience, but I think it is important to learn how to leverage the political system. And so the DPEX and the DSCCs, they exist. The executive council of the Democratic Party exists, run for office, and be able to influence, to bring in resources. If we only spend $28,000, what leadership role can you play to bring more resources in? But, you know, so that's from the partisan perspective. But also there is the conversation that we need to run for office. We need to vet people to run for office. We got brilliant Gen Z and millennial millennials that are out here that are doing wonderful work outside of the political apparatus that have the talent, that have the skill set. They just need the support, uh, the ask to run for office. Devontae Lewis is an example of a young, brilliant person who leveraged their skill set and ran for office and now is the youngest public service commissioner in the state of Louisiana. Running for office is scary. So while I'm saying to run right. for office, I also have to be able to support somebody 
to run for office. Mm. That means exactly. donate to the campaign. Canvas for the campaign. Right. Home bank for the campaign. And we need to be thinking about this right now because in four years, guess what? We're going to have another governor's race and we're going to be facing the same situation. And so we want to be ahead of that situation by let's vet our next governor. Let's vet our next uh, lieutenant governor. Let's vet our next state senators. Let's vet our next house representatives. Let's vet our next Congress people. Let's vet and let's educate and let's support. So that's that part of the exactly. Um, you asked me something else. Um, it was then okay. So we can do that, mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah. So that that's important. The other thing I would say is this is one of the reasons why it's important to support African American owned businesses mm -hmm. because you'll have white businesses that donate to campaigns. Mm -hmm. Okay, but our businesses are underfunded mm -hmm. and. Uh, only about 3% of our disposable income is spent with African-American owned businesses mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. So they're handicapped, many of them, in how much they can support uh, political campaigns that mm -hmm. will benefit their employees if they have any. 95% of our businesses don't have any employees, mm -hmm. but will benefit the owners, benefit mm -hmm. their families, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so, so all of this is connected. We have to leverage our economics to enforce our political agenda. Yes. All right. I talk about this. And one of my teachers, Dr. Claude Anderson deals with this as well. And Dr. Booker T. Washington was big on that as well to undergird our mm -hmm. economic base in order to then mm -hmm. build the political power. So I, I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and the way it is, the way it is now, we got to do all this simultaneously. <laughs> okay. Oh my Basically, we have to do, we have to do all of it simultaneously the way uh, uh, things are now. Okay. Um, the, the, there was a uh, Cliff Albright, mm -hmm. uh, co-founder of Black Voters Matter mm -hmm. uh, was uh, quoted in this article from news1.com. And I want to go to uh, this quote. Uh, Cliff Albright was on uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered here in the past few weeks as well. Uh, so uh, let me go to this piece here. Cliff Albright, co-founder of Black Voters Matter, suggested ahead of Saturday's uh, Saturday, October 14th election that the Louisiana Democratic Party inadequately invested in black voters, mm -hmm. inadequately invested in black voters. Uh, he said, quote, there's really no discussion and no important and, and more important. There's really no discussion and more importantly, very little lack of investment uh, in voter mobilization. Uh, he said this to the Hill dot com, quote, that includes the party itself not putting a lot into this election, uh, which unfortunately is a pattern that we're seeing in southern states in general, and particularly in states that have black candidates. Uh, okay, you, you want to comment on that? It was, it, clearly, this is, this past election was yes. a case study in exactly that. Yes, yeah, and and there's a there's a sentiment amongst uh, state Democratic parties in the South, uh, especially that. Uh, you can't win in the South. You can't win statewide elections in yes. the South, things like this. So why yeah. try? Okay. Yeah, I mean, because look at, look at <laughs> Governor John Bell Edwards. Yes. White, he was a white candidate, though, right? And so mm -hmm. did that have to do with his success? Because as you said, 91, 97, uh, like upper 90% yep. of the black vote that he got in comparison to the 71% that Dr. Sean Wilson, black candidate, got um, for the vote. Right. And so like, that's a real conversation and 
we really need all of our great minds on that because I think, again, we mm -hmm. have like enough untapped power in the state and enough progressive support from our from our white allies who we have to tap in as well to win elections. Right. Um, I agree with that. Uh, this article goes on to say uh, critics on social media also suggest that Louisiana's Democratic Party should be scapegoated more than black voters. Uh, Dr. Sierra Jackson, who's a scientist, posted on social media, uh, quote, uh, these uh, these takes where folks are blaming black voters in Louisiana are becoming real anti-black. Uh, Louisiana usually has a jungle primary. Landry, uh, state's attorney, uh, attorney general Jeff Landry, received more than 50 percent of the votes. This usually does not happen. Dems, Democrats put in minimal effort and minimal outreach effort with no solidified front runner, with no solidified front runner. I think there were more than a dozen people mm -hmm. uh, who, were, who were running uh, on the, uh, how many were running on the Democratic side? It, was it more it, than no, a dozen? No, no, no. On the Democratic side, there were only like three or four Democratic oh, three or four. but okay. there were on the ticket like 12 like 14 people that were running mostly 14. republicans and there was an independent uh ran as well right right okay now uh dr sierra jackson also said that she was in new orleans and new orleans louisiana and quote could not really tell you there was an and there was an election about to happen until my brother said he early voted end quote dr sierra jackson went on to say stop blaming folks that you continue to not engage, end quote. So uh, everybody check out the rest of this uh, article here by Bruce C.T. Wright for um, news1.com. Black voters scapegoated for Louisiana electing suspected white supremacist Jeff Landry as governor. So it's a, a fascinating article, gives a lot of uh, background information. They also cite this link in the article where they talk about Jeff Landry's history of um, anti-black policies. They cite this article here from boatmag.org, B-O-L-T. Uh, Jeff Landry's bid for Louisiana governor has been a crusade against his cities. Um, as attorney general, Landry has relentlessly targeted New Orleans and other largely black cities and shielded its police from reforms. Now he's bringing that message to his campaign. Mm. This is from August 31st, 2023 mm. by Piper French. And um, just quickly here, just to give you one example, uh, it says, since he took office in January 2016, uh, Landry has waged a rhetorical war on crime in New Orleans filled with racist dog whistles implying that the majority black city is lawless and out of control. Quote, he definitely appeals to race, said Bruce Riley, the deputy director of Voice of the Experienced or, or Vote, a group of formerly incarcerated Louisianans and their allies that advocates that advocates for criminal uh, legal reform. Quote, you pile on the black mayor, the black D.A., the black sheriff, right, is known as a black city, end quote. 
so uh, you can go ahead and comment on this, and then I want you to tell us about ASAP, no, that, your other organization. That, that's absolutely true. He's, he's, he's has a history, a track record of targeting or wanting to target black cities, black advocates. Again, I have a very good um, comrade in Brick of Peoples who was arrested for marching black men to the polls um, during Jeff Landry's tenure as attorney general. And so this is very real. He wants to reveal the um, arrest records of juveniles, but only in specific cities, Shreveport, Baton Rouge, mm -hmm. and New Orleans, mm -hmm. right? And so he is not hiding. It's very obvious what he is doing. Again, going back to the revolution is local. Your DA is on the local level. Your mayor is on the local level. Um, your council person is on the local level. And we have to start getting real. Local areas are black cities where we have, as Bruce was saying, our black sheriffs, our black DAs, and our black mayors. We have to get right. real about how is our blackness serving our community? How, how, how we, we black, but are we passing any mm -hmm. black legislation? Are we helping any black people? You know, we have to get real about that. What legislation do we need to put on the table to protect our people? Protect our people from poverty, protect our people from the weather, the crazy Louisiana weather, protect our people from arrest, protect our people from death and sickness, um, from violence. What are we putting on the table locally to really leverage and flex our power? That are, those are the questions we are trying to have because, and honestly, it's late, but it's not too late, right? It, 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 right. you know, it's, it's not 12 a.m., it's 3 a.m., which was a question that was asked at a conference. Is it 12 a.m. dark or is it 3 a.m. dark for the black movement in America? And I believe it is 3 a.m. Um, because there are so many tools and resources at our disposal and so much information at our disposal, but we have to connect it in a strategic way um, to build, leverage our right. local power, to engage people in our local communities, to go where people don't usually go. Uh, and that's why I believe organizations like Black Voters Matter is important, as well as ASAP, all streets, all people, ASAP, right? Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. need all streets. We need to be going into all neighborhoods, into all geographic areas, and having real conversations with people about what is at stake. Because when you talk to a person on a commercial or you try to talk to a person through a live or through a sign, that ain't cutting it. We have to have real one-on-one right. -on -one conversations. And ASAP helps to create a sense of urgency around these systems and these structures that take a long time to change. We're not going to be able to change our criminal justice system, which incarcerates more black people than anywhere else in the world in one night. It takes time, but we need everybody engaged in whatever level and whatever role you have the capacity to serve. And we need it to be done with a sense of urgency. It wasn't done yesterday. It can't be finished tomorrow, right. but we have to work at it every single day. Uh, but we also have to recognize what are the root causes to the symptoms that we're dealing with today. And you know, exactly. when, it come, when it comes down to it, we got an inequity in education. Look at this whole fight around an accurate retelling of our history and accurate teaching um, that governors are fighting all across this country um, around the woke agenda. Right. And so there are clear problems, there are clear issues, but I think that when we all tap into our core competency and our core capacity, even for our people who work full-time doing something else, there is a role for you to play in this movement work. So whether it's our education fight 
whether it's our non-violence or our gun violence fight, whether it's our mass incarceration fight, whether it's our food or black farmer fight, whether it's our housing justice fight, whether it's our electoral and voting fight, all black people need to be doing something when it comes to our liberation. And it might just be posting something one day and making phone calls another. It might just be wearing the shirt when you go into certain spaces or attending a city council meeting, but we are, we got to have all hands on deck. And I'm not just talking about in Shreveport or Louisiana. I'm talking about right. all streets, all people ASAP. So exactly now, now what is the uh, website of ASAP? How can people get more information? How can people, can people financially support yes. ASAP so, also? You know, I do want to lift up. There are three really important projects we're working on. Like this is why I love okay. you, Dr. M Hotel because our, Ella Jo Baker Movement School focuses on mm-hmm. delivering a political and popular education to everyday people so that we can have the tools. Anybody who knows Ella Baker knows that she said strong yeah. people don't need strong leaders. And so we that philosophy undergirds the movement school. We got a motivator for our new folk. We got a study for our intermediate folks who wants to delve deeper into movements of the past. And we got our lab for our people who want to take their community concerns and build an actual campaign. And so we are accepting donations. If you want to support that work, if you want to be a part of it, sign up for it. It's free. Um, Visit us on Facebook, all streets, all people, ASAP will pop up. You can check out our website at ASAPworldwide.org. yeah, and just stay engaged. Like I, I, my dream, my vision is to make our digital spaces um, a movement school. So when you log on, you can get some level of political education when we're in these spaces because we're spending so much time on the internet, we might as well be getting something out of it, even if it's just 10, 15, 20 minutes a day. So that's what I said. Now, give us the website again. It's, give us the website it's again. All Streets, All People ASAP on Facebook. It is asapworldwide.org on the, you know, on the World Wide Web. And then... Okay, asapworldwide.org. Yep. Okay. Business there. We also okay. got our boots on gonna... the ground. And anybody can have a boots on the mm-hmm. ground. And it's basically taking a molecular focus to community change. It's a team of everyday people that go out and knock on doors and have conversations with people and document those conversations organize those people as many people as we can from the neighborhood level with our neighborhood associations to be able to build campaigns and to be able to address learn how to address whatever those issues are in their community so that's boots on the ground okay excellent excellent uh visit that website for asap uh asapworldwide.org we have the link here and then uh on facebook all streets all people uh on facebook uh, lastly, people can check out this article here. I mentioned this on Roland Martin Unfiltered. We don't have time to get into it here, but this deals with the Louisiana State Constitution. I teach this in my Sunday class, dealing with black resistance movements from uh, Haitian Revolution, U.S. Civil War, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement, 1800 to 1968. This deals with Louisiana officially disenfranchises black voters and, and jurors. This was May 12, 1898. This dealt with the Louisiana, the, uh, the adoption of the Louisiana State Constitution. And they also instituted the uh, non unanimous uh, felony conviction as well. Okay. So check this out at uh, eji.org, Equal Justice Initiative. Louisiana officially disenfranchises black voters and jurors. 
and are you dropping all yeah. these links in the chat? So like afterwards, I could just like uh, I could post them here. Yes, yeah, some of them, some of them here. Yeah, I'll, I'll post this one here in the chat as well. And I don't, I don't have a doctorate. Well, but. I'm sorry, but you're dropping gems. Like <laughs> it's, all right. All right. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. I just want, I just, I just want people to know. Okay. Uh, and then uh, the um, um, Associated Press article. Uh, that I also referenced uh, in the opening of the show. Uh, Republican Jeff Landry wins the Louisiana governor's race, reclaims office for GOP. This is from the Associated Press, uh, October 15, 2023, by Sarah Klein. Uh, and then in, in going into one of my early questions in this discussion, when uh, you were, uh, I was asking you, um, when people say, what do we get uh, for our mm -hmm. vote and things like this, were they talking about specifically locally or were they talking about voting at the national level, uh, uh, president, uh, U.S. House of Representatives, things like this? What, what were they speaking In general, in general, what, how has voting changed, you know, how has voting impacted their life in any way? And then I think also there is a sentiment in the community around the fact, the mm -hmm. feeling that presidential elections, they, they already have the candidate chosen. Right. Like, you know, I would just get them. People already know who, who's going to win. There's that there's that sense that we really don't have any real say or any real control over who is elected president. But I think that same sentiment goes on the local level, too, that whoever we vote for, we may have the power to elect someone. But whoever is elected mm -hmm. hasn't done anything that has impacted my life in a positive way. There's also that feeling as well. So I think it runs the well, gamut from the top of the ticket to the bottom of the ticket. Yeah, well, oftentimes when things happen positively, they don't know why mm -hmm, they happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's why, yeah, that's you, why you, we got to make, just like you were talking about uh, Anslinger, Harry J. Anslinger, mm -hmm. right? And, Anslinger, and, and yeah. the messaging and the imagery, right, that scared people into thinking that marijuana was going to separate white men from their white women and all the black men were going, I mean, it was the messaging, mm -hmm. it, was, it was the images. And I think that we have to be able to engage our own counter offensive, our own counter campaign around the reality exactly. of what's actually happening. The reality of if you got those extra checks or whatever, this is what actually happened. Right. And that has to, yeah, Congress passed that. that. Has Congress, that wasn't, message. that has to be a bigger message because yeah. you got sexy red out here saying one thing and a lot of people are listening only to sexy red and i'm not saying that we're well, unsophisticated in terms but if the information is out there the people are going to be out there to receive it so we also on our end from our side of things have to also be flooding with information and creating opportunities for people to come in and see how the process works i think that we, yeah. we can't carry the burdens of the world on our shoulders but we also have to play the role that we have to play in terms of educating our people about how the sausage is made. So, so being that you mentioned sexy red, um, I, I saw the podcast interview that she mm -hmm. did. And for those that don't know, sexy red is an up and coming rapper who calls herself the raw dog queen. Also. Oh my God. I didn't even know. Uh, I didn't need but, to. Oh, people need to Google sexy red. Oh yes. Uh, but in a podcast, recent podcast interview, she said, that Donald Trump freed black people from prison uh, and he gave out stimulus mm -hmm. checks 
Uh, and she said, we need Donald Trump back in office. Now, she skipped over the January 6th election. She skipped over Donald Trump trying to overturn the mm -hmm. e election results of the votes of 16.9 million African-Americans. Uh, she skipped over uh, Donald Trump, uh, his two attorney generals uh, stopping the investigations and Patterson practices into police departments. Um, she skipped over the fact that his first attorney general, uh, Jeff Sessions, who was a former U.S. senator from Alabama, who helped to block the uh, police, who helped to block the criminal justice reform that Democrats are trying to get past under President Barack Obama. When Jeff Sessions became uh, Trump's first attorney general, Jeff Sessions backed off on uh, investigating police departments with the patterns and practices investigations and the patterns and practices investigations uh, that um, Attorney General uh, uh, Merrick Garland has started back up. The reason why the Department of Justice has that authority to do that is because of the 1994 crime bill. That's where that comes mm -hmm. from, just so people mm -hmm. know. But um, the stimulus checks, uh, the ability to tax and spend belongs to Congress, not the president. Trump signed off on those those care packages, the CARES packages, the two uh, coronavirus packages. and But it was Democrats that increased the amount of stimulus checks that he signed off on and he put his name on those checks. But under President Joe Biden, there was $1,400, and that came from the American Rescue Plan, and no Republicans in the House or the Senate voted for that bill, and Vice President Kamala Harris had the tie-breaking vote in the Senate so that you got those checks. So sexy ain't mentioned Yeah, that. she's not going to okay? mention but, it because but, that doesn't fit into whoever sent her. That's my personal concern. Well, 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 she doesn't study politics. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't study it, politics. It, she doesn't know that. her job as an artist, really. But also, like, we have to educate them too. Like, there is just, oh, it just had, there's so much that needs to be done. But what I will say is, what you just said got to be broken down mm -hmm. into like 20 to 30 second or one minute clips and flooded out right. there. And, you know, people of influence so, saying the same thing because those are the facts. And unless, that, unless we're vigilant about using the tools at our disposal um, to get mm -hmm. the facts out there. The misinformation will prevail and it will become common knowledge because I can't tell you enough right now how on Instagram mm -hmm. and places like um, TikTok and other places, a lot of us and a lot of people in my age group, I'm 33 years old, talking about they want to vote for Trump. And the, the right. talking points that right. they are utilizing that right and so there has got to be a massive so so this is what i do over, this is what i all of education okay i'm done well well, well we, we've been miseducated and uh like this goes back to my point a lot of us are playing the real game of political football and don't know the difference between the first down and the touchdown so um one of the reasons why i'm a political commentator is because i i do the research i'm not just a historian not not just uh, former teacher of entrepreneurship and managed black owned companies that had government contracts, but proper documentation ends all conversation. So, uh, one of the things that I do is to provide the evidence that this is now I'm the only person that I know of that has dealt with this. And I deal with this on a consistent basis. This is at whitehouse.gov. Whitehouse.gov is the official website of the white house. And this is a fact sheet. The Biden-Harris administration advances equity and opportunity for black Americans and communities across the country. This is, a uh, last time I checked, it's about 36 pages. It goes through and breaks down the policies from the Biden-Harris administration and how they are helping the African-American community.
Now, some people may say, oh, well, they talk about minority in here. Well, based upon Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Section 601, non-discrimination in federally assisted programs, race-based policies are, are illegal, which means you can't, have a, you can't have policies for only one race of people. So people want policies specifically for African-Americans. That means you don't understand law. That means you haven't done the proper and a research. Lot of us, You've and a lot of us to, don't understand law. I mean, Exactly. That's why I'm. That's why I'm breaking this down. That's why I show. That's why I mentioned this on Rolling Show. I tell people go read this because if you read this, then you understand how the 1.9 trillion dollar American Rescue Plan, the no Republicans in the House or the Senate voted for, and the only reason why you got it is because Vice President Kamala Harris was a tie-breaking vote in in the House in the, in the U.S. Senate. Okay, uh, and it and it talks about how. Uh, one million black children were lifted out of poverty because of the earned uh, uh, child tax credit. It talks about the stimulus checks. It talks about the money that went to HBCUs. It talks about how in 2021, uh, $5.8 billion went to HBCUs from the Biden-Harris administration, which is a record uh, amount of money. It talks about jobs created, okay, as well. And uh, a few months ago, we had the lowest unemployment rate in, in, in history for African-Americans, even though it may fluctuate from month to month. Okay, this goes through and, and breaks all that down. It talks about how the infrastructure bill is going to help uh, start repairing African-American communities that were separated and disrupted because of the U.S. Interstate Highway Acts in 1952 and 56 that drove 41,000 miles of U.S. Interstate Highways all across the country, and they ran through 1,600 African-American communities, mm -hmm. like the Black Bottom community that I live mm -hmm. near here in mm -hmm. Detroit, where I-375 ran through, mm -hmm. okay? So this goes through and makes the connection between policy and impact right. policy yeah. impact okay um so we'll post this link here as well this is at whitehouse.gov we'll put this link on our on our website theafricanhistorynetwork.com as well the last time this was updated was february 27 2023 the first time it came out was october of 2021 so they updated it like twice a year or so and uh, I hear people say, oh, well, Asians got a hate crime bill. OK, if you actually go to Congress.gov mm -hmm. and read the bill, because I read the bill, the name of the bill is the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. It's not the Asian Hate Crimes Act. It's the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, because when you read the bill, it deals with COVID-19 related hate crimes. Mm -hmm. And if you actually read the bill, it applies to people of all races, including African-Americans. But people skip over the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill. I don't know how people do mm -hmm. that. They talk about a bill that ain't named after Asians, but skip over the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill, which is named after a black boy. I don't understand how they do a magistrate mm -hmm. like that. But go ahead, sister. Go ahead and wrap up. All I will say is there is there are plenty of opportunities for us to build a new movement. And mm -hmm. there are plenty of people like you and me who are willing and committed to do the work that have our various talents, that have our various skills, that have our various interests. Again, there are a lot of issues in our community. But, you know, the reason why we started the movement school is because we knew that there was a gap in education, that there is a civic education gap, that there is a gap in understanding how government works. There is a gap in understanding right. our power. Um, there is a gap in making sure that we understand the interconnections between what we're feeling in our pocketbook, what we're seeing in our homes, what we're smelling in the air, and decisions that right. people are making, right? And so we just, yep. we just have to really tap into what role are we willing to play 
in this movement because these next couple of years are going to be crucial. And then for my Louisiana people, I definitely want us to, to keep hope alive because again, November 18th, we got Attorney General, State Treasurer, as well as Secretary of State and many other races, runoff races for the House and the Senate on the ballot and other right. municipal races. So we still have to get out the vote and we still got to bring our people with us. But to all my black people, all my black people, we're going to have to really tap in to what role we are playing in this black freedom movement and in the black resistance as me and my comrade Katura mm -hmm. have been lifting up. We got a whole black resistance movement happening here in Louisiana. And I think that is what we're going to have to really mount these next couple of years because I got a vision beyond all this political fighting and all this social justice where I want to go and get me some land and grow me some food and exactly. grow me some tiny homes, right? But we have to <laughs> yep. mount our resistance. We got to push back against what they're doing in the courts. Right. We got to push back against what they're doing at the polls. We got to push back against what they're doing in our legislatures, in our, in our classrooms, in our neighborhoods, in these police departments, in these jails, in these prisons, in these grocery stores. We got to push back right now. And every, got, everybody right. has to play a role in the pushback while also envision what it is that we want to see for our lives for, in terms of joy and happiness and, and radical rest. Like, what do we ultimately right. want for our communities? And I, I know we don't envision fighting forever. So there has to be both mm -hmm. a, a resistance and then there has to be a liberation vision. And I encourage everyone to tap into that, whatever that look like. Right. Well, what's the website for Black Voters Black Matter? Black Voters Matter Fund, F-U-N-D dot org. You can also find us on Facebook okay. and Instagram. Uh, and if you're in the Louisiana area, Black Voters Matter dash Louisiana, uh, if you would like to become a partner of Black Voters Matter. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, look, Omari, it's been uh, great having you on. We have to have you back. And then yeah, you. I'll definitely speak to your Freedom School. Yeah, That's the Ella, Ella Joe Baker, Baker, Baker Freedom School. Movement. Movement School. Okay. And for, movement mm -hmm. School. Right. And for those that don't know, so Ella Baker was a co-founder of Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957, along with Dr. King. And she also helped to uh, organized yeah. SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, in uh, April, right, right around April of 1960 as well. So she is really an unsung hero, I would say, of the yeah. civil rights movement. Um, probably because she was a woman. And, um, you know, a lot of people, now what I say may go outside the circumference of some people's awareness, but um, the, you know, John Lewis said it best. He said the civil rights movement was led by a lot of black male Protestant uh, ministers, and most of them were sexist. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Dr. King was a sexist also. Those that study Dr. King know this. And Ella Baker leaves Southern Christian Leadership Conference um, after she's passed over for a permanent leadership position. Because Dr. King and others, other men in the organization did not think that women uh, belonged in permanent leadership position. So she leaves SCLC that she helped to co-found. So it's a, it's a deep, yeah, I mean, we, we can go back to, you know, the Niagara movement, 1905 and, uh, uh, William Monroe Trotter, who was a, who was a brilliant brother, but really William Monroe Trotter was a sexist. He didn't think that women belonged in these organizations. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't think, 
I don't think that Ida B. Wells agreed with them too much. Yeah, and you well. know, Ella okay. Baker, she she pushed back on King. She pushed back on yeah. the civil rights leadership. And she, her whole thing was, we don't need to just depend on a charismatic leader. We need to depend on ourselves. Right, right. And that's ultimately mm-hmm. why we we founded this movement school in her namesake, because we got to empower yes. everybody, everybody, not just our charismatic leaders or our great orators who serve a role, mm-hmm. but they're they're not the only type of leaders that we need. Right, right. Okay, well, everybody, we've been speaking with uh, Omari Hosang of Black Voters Matter and Black Voters Matter Fund and founder, executive director of All Streets, All People ASAP. She's in Louisiana, so uh, check her out. Thanks. All right, Omari, you have a great Thank night, okay? Thank you so much for having me. It was very Thanks fun. for coming up. Peace. No problem. No problem. Peace. All right, everybody. Uh, I'm Michael M. Hotel, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. Uh, if you learned anything today, uh, be sure to support the African History Network uh, as well. Uh, you can support us, dollar sign, the AHN show uh, through Cash App, through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Also visit our website, uh, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. Register for the online uh, history classes that I teach that I mentioned uh, briefly a few minutes ago. Um, I'm a historian. I'm not just a political commentator. Some of you all see me on Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, on Fridays. Uh, this this month is my third month anniversary uh, being third, third year anniversary, I should say, being on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. Scroll down. We have information about my Sunday night show, the African History Network show. But uh, the online classes that I teach, uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach them in school. And our next class is going to be, uh, it's actually going to be Sunday, uh, October 29th, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, our next class. Normally we do the Saturdays, but this class we're going to do on Sunday. Uh, we do a thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place, okay? So we had a great class this past, um, this past Sunday. Yeah, we did a class uh, Sunday, October 22nd. And uh, I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips, and we take you all throughout history. Uh, it's about 80 articles, every reference. Um, there's 15 books. We show you excerpts of the book on, on the screen. I created the PowerPoint presentation. We have about 200 slides in the PowerPoint presentation. Then my Sunday class, Black Resistance Movements from the Haitian Revolution, U.S. Civil War, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement, 1800 to 1968, okay? And um, that class picks up where uh, the, the the other one, um, the first class leaves off, all right? So uh, we did a free class session on Saturday, uh, October 22nd. So if you missed that, visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. You can register for that free class session and you can watch it. It's archived. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. And you can join us in class um, on uh, Sunday, uh, October 29th. Okay. All right. We have to get out of here. Remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now, it's correct for own behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And we'll talk to you next time. Peace.
Is your child struggling with reading, writing, learning loss, and a culturally irrelevant curriculum? Do you want your child to be outstanding at reading and writing and also take pride in their culture? Then you want Reading Revolution Online. Reading Revolution Online is a web-based reading support program. We serve scholars in grades K through 8, and through our innovative approach, we help them build reading confidence and cultural identity development, equipping them for success in school and life. They learn about black heroes and sheroes through captioned videos, reading selections, and other activities. Reading Revolution Online is an experience for the whole family. Do it for the culture. Go to readingrevolution.org and get your membership today.